Our second reading is from the book of 1 Kings, chapters 10 and 12. Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king, that you may execute justice and righteousness. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. The word of the Lord. Good morning. I got a few more things than normal this morning. Sorry, unpacking my stuff. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your passionate commitment to us. And we offer up ourselves as we offer up those children. We are your children. And you know we can be unruly and cranky, impatient, doubting. But we come and we turn our faces and our hearts to you and say, Lord, feed us and help us. You are our Father. We do entrust ourselves to you even as we're here this morning and ask for you together to speak and guide the individuals in this room. You know what we need. And so we surrender ourselves to you and your word. In your name, amen. Amen. Feel free to um, slap your arms a bit this morning. Well, I will assume that's not about me because it is cold in here, colder than we thought it might be. I want you to take a second and imagine um, a year from now. Imagine 2023, okay, and, and think about some things you might like to see happen in your life in the next year, okay? So aspirational goals you might have. They might be financial goals, physical goals, relational goals, academic goals, your own goals, not goals your parents might have for you, but you might have for yourself, 
Okay, so think a year out. What are goals you might have? If you were, if we were gathering in a year, you'd say, this is something that happened and I, I worked on. It was a great part of 2023. Everybody have something? Some category. Now think your way backwards and think about if you were gonna look at that goal and blow it up, right? You were gonna, you were gonna make sure it didn't happen. What would you do? Let's say you decided you wanted to get a higher GPA in school this year, but then you, you didn't do any homework or any work at all. I have a good friend here in town who works in the academic help area of one of the local universities, and he says basically if, if just sev- the kids would go to class, 70% of their trouble would be solved if they just went to class every week. <laughs> Let's say you say, I'm going to be stronger, but the way I'm going to do it is I'm not going to touch any weights or do any push-ups or sit-ups. Let's say you want to save more money, put more money in your savings, but you're like, I'm, not gonna, I'm never going to put money in savings. I'm just going to kind of see what happens. Maybe you'd like to have lower blood pressure, and you're, but you're like, you know, the way I'm going to get there is I'm going to eat salt in everything I eat. Right? If you came to us and said, is this a wise plan? We would say, no. It's unwise. It's inconsistent. Because we all know that to, to achieve some of those things, Rather than blowing something up, it requires a bit of devotion, right? A bit of faithfulness. You need to be faithful about going to class or lifting weights or putting money in savings. And this morning as we continue our series in Kings, we're going to see some some painful, tragic examples of folks who had aspirational goals, things they wanted to see happen, but through a misguided or lack of application and devotion and faithfulness, they blew things So if you have a Bible and want to turn to 1 Kings, you just heard some passages read, I'll be walking us through. We're again in the book of Kings, First and Second Kings, which is really one book during Epiphany. We're celebrating wise men coming, wise men from outside the normal ethnic mix of people who were following Yahweh, this big, broad God pursuing the world from now through Ash Wednesday in late February. And as our Series title talks about sort of seriously and jokingly, we're looking at the good, the bad, and the ugly. Some good kings, some bad kings, some good prophets, some bad prophets. And last week, Johnny introduced us to the first sort of eight chapters of the book, right? He gave us some broad brush strokes, and we looked particularly at Solomon. Anybody remember anything that we learned or you know about Solomon from last week? John, this guy has a lot of things to say. We'll just skip over. Anybody, anything about Solomon? Solomon asked for wisdom, right? When God came and said, what can I give you? He asked for wisdom. What else? And his heart, it's better than wisdom. The, the, Johnny talked about, we're going to come back to that this morning, giving God your heart more important even than having wisdom. We'll see that this morning. Other things. What did he build? He built something really impressive. The temple, right? Solomon's temple that they're still talking about all the way down, centuries later. And his palace, right? If you, keep, if you do some of the, the reading plan, which you hear about a little bit in the sermon and then again in announcements, you'll see he built the temple and then he built the palace. Excuse me, the other way around. Yeah, and if you read along, you'll see it took more time to build the palace, which is maybe a little bit of a sign of trouble. Johnny said last week, that, uh, gave us the theme. Anybody remember the theme of kings. Good, bad, and the ugly. That's good, man. That's not a bad theme, right? 
how the covenant's lived out. Faithfulness to the covenant. Faithfulness is the theme, and I'm just gonna add a little to that this morning when we finish and look at how does today's passages really apply to us. This week in our readings, if you kept up with the reading plan, we looked at chapters nine to 14, and so I'm gonna brush stroke those a bit and then land on one thing. Usually I say I'm gonna focus on three things, two things, four things. This morning I'm only gonna focus on one thing through these three kings we see in the chapters we've looked at, chapters nine to 14. Our passages pick up and, and things are going pretty great. Solomon's been king for a while, and his wisdom is spreading. He asked for wisdom, and boy, he got it. And people are coming to say, hey, tell me about wisdom. I've got these questions. And so people are coming from all over the world. Typically, they come and they bring tribute so that the nation's growing in its wealth. And chapter 10 that Sonia read, you hear the queen of Sheba has come. And she comes and she gets all her questions answered. Think about if you go to somebody would you take, how much time and energy would you give to go to somebody who could answer literally all the questions you had? This is what she does. And she gives money. She brings all kinds of spices and tribute and wood and gold. She sees his court. She's in his palace. She sees the food they eat. She sees his palace, as Bob mentioned. And she's so overwhelmed that the passage says that her breath was taken away. I don't know any other place in the whole Bible where that phrase is used. Someone's so overwhelmed being in the presence of what some commentators call just the, the way God is ordering the world in Solomon's little world, that she's breath is gone. She's breathtaking to be in his presence. And she praises God for installing Solomon, and she says, well, how fortunate Israel must be. Then as we keep going through chapter 10, we see some of that spillage of how fortunate they are because we get a, an annotation of some of the wealth Solomon has, particularly gold. If you read the last part of t- chapter 10, you're gonna hear a lot about gold. There's so much gold that that's what Solomon drinks out of. It says there's so much gold that they don't even worry about silver. Silver's just like, you just pick it up on the ground, I guess, and you know, comb your hair with a piece of it. I don't know. So he's wealthy. But then we get to chapter 11, and we hear a shift. Something, you know, you would put scary music on. It's like Darth Vader music, segueing from 10 to 11. Because there's a reprioritization in Solomon's life we hear about. In chapter 3, we're told that Solomon loved God. But in chapter 11, it says that Solomon loved many foreign women who turned his heart away from God. Loved many foreign women who turned his heart away from God. That sentence is tragic and painful. And if you go through chapter 11, you get some numbers. Johnny mentioned some of those last week. 700 wives and 300 concubines. Those numbers bring so many questions to everybody's mind, right? Something you can talk about on your, for over lunch. And, and if you were with Solomon and you had asked him, hey, Solomon, project out decades. You've seen your dad and what this aspirational goal you might have for your reign would be. And he told you, and you said, you know, how would you blow that up? This would be the way <laughs> to marry foreign women, not because the women are bad or unkind, but because they will turn his devotion away from Yahweh. And if you keep reading, you see he doesn't just love these women, but he, he wants to help express that love. So he begins to facilitate building places they can worship their gods, their idols, their false gods. And he builds them shrines in several places in Israel. He begins to install things, as you'll, a phrase you'll hear over and over again from now on, is the high places, places Israel would go to offer sacrifices. Most tragically, he builds a, a, a place of worship on the hill of East of Jerusalem, which is the Mount of Olives, 
to Chemosh and Moloch, these two Canaanite gods who both begged child and human sacrifice. And if you race through that verse in chapter 11 and don't really think about, wait, Moloch, who is Moloch? Kings offered their firstborn to Moloch on the Mount of Olives, just outside Jerusalem, where he built a temple. We talked in December about Ruth in those first few verses and how it kept getting worse. Well, this is, this is what the same thing happened. This is getting terrible. So God disciplined Solomon by tearing the kingdom away. And he sends rivals, three rivals. First two, Hadad, Rezon, not as important for our story. Jeroboam, the third one. Basically, this is a rival in the north of Israel, a rival in the south of Israel, and then an internal rival, Jeroboam, who comes from, out, from within the people of Israel. Solomon learns of Jeroboam and tries to kill him. And Jeroboam flees to Egypt. Some commentators think Jeroboam might have been in Egypt as long as 15 years. And by the end of chapter 11, we find out Solomon has died after 40 years, same as his dad, as king of a united Israel. And God promises to keep a couple of tribes because he loved David and he was faithful to the covenant there, but the other 10 tribes, Solomon knows, are gonna go with somebody else. So at the end of chapter 11, we're wondering, well, who's gonna rule, right? And we find this new guy, Rehoboam, Solomon's oldest son. Rehoboam calls all Israel to Shechem, which is this historically significant place to gather. If you remember way back, maybe if you read through the book of Joshua, Israel gathers in Joshua, Joshua 24, as a, as a covenant renewal ceremony. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. If you've ever heard that verse, that's what's happening at Shechem. So Rehoboam's at least smart enough to know to be reestablished as the king, I need to be at a significant place. Everybody come to Shechem. Meanwhile, Jeroboam in Egypt hears about this. He travels up from Egypt, and he's at Shechem, and he presents the case of the people because Rehoboam wants to be installed as king, and Jeroboam says, well, before we give you our devotion, our heart as people, your dad was pretty harsh. Turns out Solomon was enlisting the Israelites in some of the forced labor to produce all these things we heard about, gold and crops and everything, not just the Canaanite people, but Israelites. Rehoboam is confronted with, hey, can you lighten up, is what they basically ask. And he asks for three days to ponder, and he gets advice. He gets some advice from older people and from younger people, his peers. Rehoboam's 41. The older people give good advice. Hey, they say the kings are to serve the people. So you should lighten their load. Your dad was a little harsh. These are people who knew his dad. The younger voices say, hey, that's not true. People are to serve you as the king. Be tough, be harder. Don't take this lip from the Israelites. You're the king. And if you're Rehoboam and your goal for 2023 was a smooth transition to being king, what would you do? But if you wanted to blow that up, what advice would you listen to? Younger or the older? He listens to the younger. How well do you think that goes? Not very well. The kingdom divides forever. That's it. Ten tribes go with Jeroboam. They become the northern kingdom in Israel. Two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, stay with Rehoboam. They're the southern kingdom, now Judah. Rest of kings, that's the division now. Jeroboam, you hear in the verses that Sonia read, begins to make a kingdom in the north. He builds some palaces. But then, in the Hebrew, Jeremiah freaks out. 
Because he says, well, the people are used to going to this beautiful temple. That's where they worship. That's where the Ark of the Covenant is. That's where God rests in the middle of the people. I need a place like that. I don't trust God. Even though God said, I'll make your house as sure as David's. If you are faithful to me, you will never not have someone from your line on the throne. It's the same promise he made to David. But Jeroboam wrestles, and we see he can't trust God in that promise. He just can't. And if you went to Jeroboam and said, Jeroboam said, hey, if you want to make 2023 a really smooth transition to you being the king of these 10 tribes, which God installed you to do, what might you do? But if you want to blow that up, if you're Jeremiah, you'd say, you know, if I want to blow it up, I might make a place. Places, plural places for Israel to worship, maybe in the north, in Dan, maybe in the south, in Bethel. I might make some golden calves because that seemed to go great for Israel back in Exodus. And I might even say to the people, behold, here are the gods who brought you out of Egypt. Because if I want to blow it up, I want to do it all. One commentator says that Jeremiah starts like Moses, right? He comes out of Egypt to redeem the people, but he ends like Aaron, inviting their worship to golden calves as the bringers out redeemers of Egypt. And how do you think that goes? Well, Jeremiah sends a prophet, tells Jeroboam he's gonna die. The end of his reign will be with him. His, none of his heirs, except for his one firstborn son who's about to die, will be buried in any sort of tomb. Now you'd hope that Rehoboam, down in the two southern tribes, would hear this news and see how things are going and lead a revival, right? Like, wow, I've learned devotion and faithfulness and committing to Yahweh. It's not going great when we don't do that. What's he do? He builds alternative shrines too. He brings in new idols. He creates shrines and cult prostitution, things his dad hadn't done. Sows the seeds of Judah's destruction, which will come after Israel's in centuries, but is gonna come. Rehoboam's uh, power diminishes so much that within five years, we read that the, the Pharaoh of Egypt, who very well could have been Solomon's father-in-law, remember Solomon married daughter of Egypt. So Solomon's father-in-law comes to Israel and strips gold from the temple and takes it. So all this gold at the end of chapter 10, Rehoboam's disobedient. Now it's gone. These chapters are terrible. And they beg for us, wow, shake us. What, I, I don't want to I don't want that. To, I don't want to live that way. I don't want to have that fruit. I want to have aspirational goals about shalom and justice and being invited into God's presence and worshiping him and, and bringing his blessing to the land. If, if that's what we want, what do we do differently, right? This is a scholar named Peter Lightheart's summary of what's happening in Kings from these chapters especially. The book of Kings narrates Israel's fall into idolatry, its seduction by the ways and gods of the Gentiles, which leads to the judgment of exile. Instead of clinging to Yahweh, as the law requires, and he lists Deuteronomy 10, says it, 11, 13, and 30, 
Instead of clinging to Yahweh, Solomon clings to the foreign women and their gods. A really interesting parallel reading, if you want, is to read through Deuteronomy as we read Kings because you begin to see that they're just ticking boxes of terrible things. I'll highlight a couple of those in a second. So how can we learn? How can this tragedy that literally affected hundreds of years of Israelite history and people, real people on the ground dying, how can we learn? And again, I just want to focus on one thing. And I just want to flesh out Johnny's theme from last week. Like the real theme of Kings is faithfulness, and I just want to add, is faithfulness in our devotion to God. The real theme is, it's not just standalone faithfulness. You promise to mill your neighbor's grass, so you're always going to do it. It's faithfulness in our devotion to God, and it spill out into your entire life. So for the sake of worship, I want to remind us, like worship is what we do seven days a week unto the Lord. This is the people of God gathering for public worship, but then that worship spills out. One of the reasons we celebrate Martin Luther King is because he understood our worship was to spill out, not just in how the church gathered on a Sunday, but then how they were the people in the family of God Monday through Saturday. So when I say, as we go, I'm gonna say your faithfulness in worship is your utter devotion to God for all of life. That's the central theme of Kings. And oh my gosh, that applies to all of us, even though this book is millenniums old. And I just want to focus on these three men and what we can unpack from their lives. Because each of, their char- each of these characters shows where their heart is devoted. And each of the places their heart's devoted, my heart's tempted to be devoted to as well, and so is yours. As places on the high places that might save or promise safety or affirmation or protection from disapproval, or extra money, or blessing. But what we see is their devotion away from God blows up their lives. So we want to ask, what can we learn to yoke our lives, to devote our lives to God? So we'll look again, Solomon, Jeroboam, Rehoboam. Solomon, again, starts tragically, or ends, it's so tragic because he started so well. Like he had given his heart to God. He, he is wise. When God comes and says, I mean, again, think about if God showed up in your house tonight and said to you, I will give you whatever you want. How many of us would say wisdom? How many of us would be that? I mean, it is an anointed moment that he asked God for this. But God didn't just want the, the, the temple. God doesn't need a temple to be living. He'd said that for centuries. I live, I'm in the heavens and in the earth. I don't need this structure that you want to give me. It's great that he did, and he was happy to be there, but he, he wanted Solomon's heart, and he wanted all of Israel's heart. We'll read over and over again how often they will, will bow and lean to like, well, we have the temple, and we still offer sacrifices there, even though they're not giving their heart to God. Their hearts aren't circumcised to the Lord. So two places Solomon really drops the ball. One is in his wealth, right? He has given this wealth from God. One commentator on these passages says, you know, wealth is never an individual matter. People with wealth should always honor God as the giver. Solomon's wealth was not his personally, nor were the riches he accumulated in Jerusalem an example for God to give him individual wealth. It's actually an example for God to give to him to bless others. The theme of our lives with God, our spiritual formation, is we are blessed to bless others. All the way back to Genesis 12 and Abraham. 
Deuteronomy 8 says, remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirm the covenant. What do we sing and say often during the offering? All things come of thee, O Lord, and of thine own have we given thee. Somewhere Solomon forgot that. He forgot where the wealth was coming from, where the wisdom came from, and he forgot what the wealth was for. In 1 Kings 4 and 5, Solomon's using the wealth he's given as a gift to share. He is blessing the people. It's going out. There's prosperity in the land. Yesterday, I bought a bag of peanut M&Ms at Target, and I bought the size that's the share size. Now, if I go home and I don't share with my wife and my daughter, I'm a pig. God gave Solomon this share size of wealth in Israel, and it's to be shared. But he's pigging out on peanut M&Ms all day long. And it actually shows up in between the lines of this Queen of Sheba passage. She's, her breath is taken away. She can't even speak. It's so overwhelming to see all that's happening, how God's blessed him. But what she blesses is what she's seen, which is his royal court, dukes, earls, kings, queens, princes in his room, and his food, it's very lavish food. She doesn't bless how it's spilled out into the city or the farms or the land, which was happening in chapters four and five. And then, through God's kindness, she actually prophesies by blessing Yahweh for setting Solomon up to love Israel, and I hope you caught at the end of what Sonia read, because he was sent to execute justice and righteousness. He's sent to bless with the wealth. Remember, justice is shalom, right? Full life for all in all spheres, which of course would be economic. Righteousness, if you remember back a couple summers ago when we did the Beatitudes together, is God's restoration of what I said then was the four-dimensional breakdown of sin, our relationship with God, ourselves, our neighbor, and the world. And so we pursue righteousness when we work to rebuild those relationships, which is what the king's supposed to do. Serve the people, not be served by the people. But as we keep reading, we found, oh, he's bringing in idols, not just an idol, but literally building them a temple for themselves so they can sacrifice kids. So that's gonna break the relationship with God, that relationship, no righteousness there. And we find out he's forcing the Israelites into hard labor so he can have this lavish food and all this gold everywhere. So much so that the echoes are about Pharaoh in Egypt. So no righteousness with his neighbors or his people there. That's a breakdown. Justice and righteousness, whoops. His wealth is for him. Again, Deuteronomy, so helpful. Deuteronomy 17 says, do not trade with Egypt for horses. Do not build trade with the nations around you for you depend on them. And if you read what he's doing in chapter 10, it's like he went and read, don't, it says not to do this, I'm gonna blow it up and I'm gonna do exactly that. He's taking, it gives you the price he's getting for horses in Egypt if you read in chapter 10. He's getting them in Egypt and he's selling them. So buying in Egypt, going to Israel, selling them to the Hittites. One commentator says he's an arms dealer and he's actually selling the stuff that is being earned by the people of Israel to the nations that will come and conquer them later. That, my friends, is blowing it up. The devotion to money so high and away from God, he can't see the nose in front of his face. Because 
I'm sure he felt like, well, having strong relationships with these other nations is good. The more money, the better is good. My, I need more chariots, it seems like, because I have all these friends that seem to want to be around of these parties when the queen comes. But his belief in what will make him safe is no longer Yahweh. It's his work, his mind, his money. And he lives in ostentatious leisure. What he needs is a few less gold-covered shields and a few more opportunities for the Israelites to live without harsh, terrible labor practices. The second place we can see his devotion shift, and it can beg questions for us. Again, money for us, like for him. And then the second is his relationships. Of course, particularly in his wives, plural. Again, if you read Deuteronomy 7, there's a specific list of the nations they're not supposed to marry in. And if you took that list and looked at the nations that Kings tells you he married... It's like he went and said, well, who am I not supposed to marry? I'm going to go find women from those nations to marry. It's almost one-to-one. Again, it's not a comment on the women or their character. It's a comment on his heart and his worship. Because for sure, who you are yoked to, who you are in primary relationships with, will affect your worship and your devotion. And you'll affect theirs. And the wives do. Again, shrines, buildings, sacrifices. It built a ton of foreign alliances that probably felt great and safe. He probably felt like we're a small nation and we're threatened by the people around us who don't like what we believe or what we affirm or what we want to do. Anybody here relate to that? Maybe you feel small as a Christian and you're surrounded by people who don't like what you believe or what you affirm or what you want to do. And so the temptation away is to build relationships who won't stoke your devotion to God. So again, as we look at, at 2023, who are you and I devoted to? Do you and I have primary relationships that stoke the fires of our devotion to God? In our friendships, do we do that for each other if we're in a marriage? If you're dating somebody, that'd be a great question. Does this person stoke my devotion to God? It's a reason we talk about small groups in this church, which will be up in a few weeks. It's not because we're contractually obligated before God to offer small groups as a church. It's because we believe you and I need people to help stoke our fire and our devotion. We should probably call the small groups something like that. Devotion stokers. Maybe that's the new name for small groups. Are you in a devotion stoker? Well, that would get cut to the chase, wouldn't it? Because who we worship, the other thing, not only will the people you're connected to affect who you're worshiping and what your devotion is, but you'll want to affect theirs too. Because what we see, as Solomon starts to bend, he starts to bend to other people. As Jeroboam starts to wonder and doubt God, whether he can trust God, he needs the people of Israel to doubt it too. Because that psychic tension is hard. So if your devotion to God's starting to slip, you're going to want to make sure it slips for somebody else. I don't want that for you, but I'm just telling you, that's how it works. And if we're honest, we might look at Solomon go, well, gosh, it's so simple. Jesus just said in the other passage we read this morning, here's the two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Heart's right at the top. And love your neighbors yourselves. For sure, Solomon knew that verse, just like I know that verse. But if I'm honest, sometimes that's hard. Sometimes there are things that look like a high place that would provide me more safety, security, affirmation, less conflict living in a fallen world. 
Sometimes my devotion is beckoned by something else. Affirmation from somebody, or if I had this much money or did that and got money, it would feel easier. But Solomon's a reminder. Faithfulness in our devotion, in our worship, is the theme of kings. What can we learn about devotion from Jeroboam? Well, again, had God speak directly to him, I, I'm always cautioned of the people who hear directly from God through prophets or people in the Bible, because I know we all would love to hear God speak clearly on some things, but boy, it is often surprising what they hear. He heard him say, I'll give you these promises. Trust me, trust me. But he, he literally can't do it. One commentator just so clear. Jeremiah could not put his trust in God. That's what's wrong. Jer- or excuse me, not Jeremiah. Jeroboam could not put his trust in God. It's back to Genesis 3, right? The promise given to Adam and Eve and the underlying begging temptation of the devil is, can you really trust God? So Jeremiah thinks he can't. And he creates his own objects of devotion. Again, these two golden, golden calves and leads others to idolatry. Again, who you're devoted to, you probably want them to come with you. And one way to counter that, that, that begging of these things will save me, I, I can't trust God, is to, to make a list and review with yourself and your friends and your family and your kids all the ways God has shown up for you. Because we look at that passage and we're like, are you kidding me, Jeroboam? The entire national history of Israel is centered around God redeeming you out of Exodus. So many Psalms, so many Proverbs, your dad, or excuse me, that Solomon wrote, talk about it. Of course those golden calves didn't bring him out of Egypt. But then we get in those moments and we forget, right? So I'd encourage you maybe this week to sit down and go, how has God provided for me and shown up for me in the past? Whether you're at a place you feel tempted or not, because then you can go back to it and say, this is the way. This is what God has done. So when it's, when it's hard, you know. I was thinking this week as I read this, boy, that would be a really effective T-shirt or bumper sticker campaign. Always know who really brought you out of Egypt. And again, might be a question to ask each other. Who brought you out of Egypt? How did God save you? And then again, what are you tempted to believe and saved you? And then lastly, Rehoboam. And I find this whole set, it's, one, it's poetically beautiful. The, re- the passages on Rehoboam, if you take a second and read and start doing some math, are poetically beautiful but super painful and, and cautionary, especially if you're a parent. So I think as his parents, as a, if you're a parent here, let's just lay out a little. Like, so Solomon is Rehoboam's dad, and he's considered the wisest man on the face of the earth. So if you're a dad here, one, don't worry. You don't have to be that. It was Solomon. If you're a kid here, just know we know your dad's not the wisest man on the face of the earth. But it, <laughs> somebody over here regretted, darn. Um, it turns out you can be wise but not live in the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, which Solomon himself teaches us at the beginning of the Proverbs. Solomon, his dad, Rehoboam's dad, ruled Israel for 40 years. And Rehoboam became king at 41. So if you do the math, it means that Rehoboam was one year old when Solomon became king of all Israel, which means Rehoboam never really knew a time when his dad wasn't king, right? 41 years old, my dad was king for 40 years. I, I was one year old when my dad became king of all Israel. 
and I've grown up watching him be the wisest man on the face of the earth. And so ideally, you would hope your oldest son or your kids, Solomon's giving energy to raise his kids, and he's, his son's gonna pattern his life after his dad, right? Love the Lord your God. Go to the temple. He, clearly, he watched the temple being built and all the energy that went into that. He watched the palace. He probably knew about when the Queen of Sheba came. You'd love for Rehoboam to have plenty of protections against blowing it up. Here's how you do it. Be devoted the way your dad's devoted. Don't do this. Don't worship your convenience. Don't live in wealth and luxury. Don't treat Yahweh like he's just one of several good options for worship. Oh, he's a nice guy. Don't install and give devotion to other idols in your heart or your city. Don't use the people harshly for your own ends rather than serve them. And if you read about Rehoboam, you could say, oh, that's what Rehoboam did. That's who Rehoboam became. But if you read about Solomon, you realize that's who Solomon was. I'm not describing Rehoboam, I'm describing Solomon. And all Rehoboam did was watch what his dad did and replicate it. And again, if you're here as a parent, please hear that, because it is a sober tale. He watched what his dad was devoted to and he replicated it. He's devoted in the same ways his dad is. So as a parent, what are we devoted to? Who are we devoted to? Because our kids are watching and learning. Another painful note in chapter 14, and this is the subtle beauty of the narrator. <clears throat> Twice in the end verses of chapter 14, the narrator makes sure we know that Rehoboam's mom was named Namah the Ammonite. You can go back and read it later today. And his mom was Namah the Ammonite, which we often find out who the king's moms were as they get established as we go forward. But it's weird to, to say it twice, right? Like we know enough about, we've, you guys are skilled Bible readers. So you're like, wait, why would the narrator tell me that twice? I, I, I heard it eight verses ago. Not dumb. Not wise, but I'm not dumb. Namoth Ammonite. Okay, again, do some math. Solomon ruled for 40 years. Rehoboam came to power at 41, so Rehoboam was a year old. So that means Solomon and Namah had Rehoboam within the first year or two of Solomon's reign, which means Solomon was already marrying non-Israelite women when he was early on in taking the mantle of leadership from David. It didn't happen when he was 20 years in or 25 years in. It was already happening. Rehoboam was a year old when he became king. It means his wife, Namah the Ammonite, was probably pregnant with him, with Rehoboam, before Solomon became king. Do you want to blow up your life? Or do you want to show the fruits of devotion? Our devotional commitments as parents really matter. Because we're sowing seeds that will bear fruit in 10 20, 30, 40 years. By the time Rehoboam was king, he had decades of watching his dad compromise in his devotion to God. And all he did was replicate that set of choices. So just a few questions as we close. For this year, again, and you could, you could probably write them yourself at this point, but what will we be devoted to and ways to evaluate that would be how we use our time, how we use our money, 
Will you be in a devotion stoker this year? Will you maybe use the reading plan? Johnny will show you the card in a little bit, just this, to spend time with God in these King's passages. How in a year would you and I be able to look? How would you be able to look at my life and go, that guy's devoted to God? It's a powerful verb, isn't it? Devoted. Because God is not looking for your perfection. God did not expect these men to be perfect. He just wanted their devotion, their heart. The second question would just be, what are your high places? What are those places in addition to Yahweh that you keep around to help you feel safe? I really love God, but I got this money up here makes me feel pretty good. I really love God, but this set of relationships, I know it's not great for me, but it, I just feel affirmed over there. My work success, physical fitness, grades, the right college, my kids going to the right college. We all, we all have those tempting high places. So again, in, you're not alone here as you think about those. But as we come to communion, could we together say, Lord, here's my heart. As Johnny highlighted last week, God wanted that more than the temple. And what are those places where I'm tempted in 2023 to, to worship instead of worship at the Lord's feet? Let's pray. Dear Lord, these are honest and sobering passages. And we thank you that the Bible shows you remained faithful to your plan, even when these men like us failed, when they were tempted, not devoted in the ways that you wanted them to be, because you knew it was the fullest life, the best life they could have. You were faithful to your plan to send a son to die for us. So as you are devoted to us, help us grow in our devotion to you as we learn and read together. Show us in your kindness those high places, even as we come to confess our sins that we might need to offer to you this morning. In your name.